I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Stalker. The film so dangerous, it killed its director. Andrei Tchaikovsky, the Russian director, is often thought of as one of the most important and influential directors of all time. With films like Solaris, The Mirror, and Stalker to his name, it's hard to argue with that general consensus. However, what does it take to produce works that are universally considered to be towering achievements? Well, Stalker, Tarkovsky's last film while he lived in Russia, was so difficult to make that he literally had to do it not once, or twice, but three times. The production was so troubled and dangerous that it said it actually killed him. mirror of a hellish trip. Every artist works in two mediums, time and compromise. You're constantly battling the constraints of what you can afford to make, what you can realize through your personal resources. You're constantly grappling with a world that is completely indifferent to your desires and dreams. And thus, you're presented with only one way out, compromise. This was not something that Tarkovsky handled well. He was a man of stern conviction and hellish fortitude. He refused to accept anything less than his true artistic north. His visual style is often thought of to be comprised of long shots, intricate performances, and slow burn narratives that envelop the observer. It's often said that he was constantly reaching for something more, engaging in a pursuit of something higher. Film is an attempt to speak to a greater truth. It's meditative. When you watch a Tarkovsky film, you can feel the author attempting to solve a riddle that they themselves have created. Andrei Tarkovsky was born on April 4th, 1932. Tarkovsky was born in a village named Zavrezhi. His father was a translator and his mother graduated from the Maxim Gorky Literature Institute. She later worked as a corrector. His father left the family in 1937, volunteering for the army in 1941. He returned home in 1943, having been awarded a red star after being shot in one of his legs, which he would eventually need to have amputated due to gangrene. Tarkovsky attended the Oriental Institute in Moscow after graduating high school. He majored in Arabic, but did not graduate. He dropped out to work as a prospector for the Academy of Science Institute for non-farious metals and gold. He took on a year-long research mission where he ultimately decided to go back to school and major in film. Upon returning in 1954, he applied to the State Institute of Cinematography and was accepted into the film directing program. The early Khrushchev era offered many opportunities for young directors, thanks to what is now termed as the Khrushchev Thaw, a political doctrine that encouraged a de-escalation of censorship and a swing to the left for the country politically. Thanks to this, an influx of foreign cultural artifacts flooded Russia. Tarkovsky became fascinated by the works of the Italian neorealists, the French New Wave film, and Japanese films. In 1956, he directed his student short film, The Killers, based on a short story by Hemingway. My favorite part of this is the part when she's touching his chest now, and then I think what happens next is she takes off her dress now, letting me go. I hate you. <laughs> My favorite part was Eric Roberts. Yeah. Ooh, a dolly forward. Lewis. 
Ты что возьмешь, Эл? Не знаю. Дайте мне свинолочным соусом и картофельные пюре. Филе еще не готово. Какого же черта она стоит у меня? Ты из обеда, обеда шести часов, а сейчас только пять. Написай двадцать шестого. Они на двадцать минут вперед. Что же у вас есть? Есть разные сэндвичи, яичница с салом, яичница с ветчиной, печенка с салом. Дайте мне крокеты из курицы под белым соусом published or or known work uh is really emblematic of his style that will reverberate out through his entire career which is like these these uh not not even just like oneers like not like spielberg style oneers where it's about the spectacle of one shot uh but more just like long meditative um uh single shots typically accompanied with some kind of push in or or pull out it was yeah, all just one long shot it's like yeah, the shot and and he's known for having a high average um you know uh seconds per shot in his movies but that 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 op- first shot of anything he ever produced uh is let's see it's a, it's a little little over a minute Tarkovsky followed that up with a television film called There Will Be No Leave Here, released in 1959. From there, he jumpstarted his feature film directing career with a film called Ivan's Childhood, released in 1962. Ivan's Childhood tells the story of orphan boy Ivan, whose parents were killed by the invading German forces, and his experience during World War II. Ivan's Childhood was one of several Soviet films of its period, such as The Cranes Are Flying and Ballad of a Soldier, that looked at the human cost of war and did not glorify the war experience as did films produced before the Khrushchev thaw. In a 1962 interview, Tarkovsky stated that in making the film, he wanted to, quote, convey all his hatred of war, and that he chose childhood because it is what contrasts most with war. In 1966, he released Andrei Rublev. Andrei Rublev is set against the background of early 15th century Russia. Although the film is only loosely based on the life of Andrei Rublev, it seeks to depict a realistic portrait of a medieval Russia. Tarkovsky sought to create a film that showed the artist as a, quote, world historic figure, and Christianity as an axiom of Russia's historical identity during a turbulent period of Russian history that ultimately resulted in the Tsardom of Russia. Solaris was released in 1972. It was a reaction to his hatred of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. The plot centers on a space station orbiting the fictional planet Solaris, where a scientific mission has stalled because the skeleton crew of three scientists have fallen into emotional crises. Psychologist Chris Kelvin travels to the station in order to evaluate the situation, only to encounter the same mysterious phenomenon as the others. The film was Tarkovsky's attempt to bring a new emotional depth to science fiction films. He viewed most Western works in the genre as shallow due to their focus on technological invention. So Solaris is probably his most famous movie here in the West yeah, because sure. it was, you remake. know, there was a remake of it. Um, with and our, also with our boy Clooney Clunes. Yeah, Jojo Clunes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a movie that also has such a clear emotional hook that it's easy to relate to regardless of the culture. Like it's such a human story. And also it's such a weary film. Like the the space station itself is just like, a gutted school bus or something like it's really it's a not only is it a great movie but it's a great movie visually because the emotional stress of the characters is represented physically in the space which is something not that not all genre directors think about yeah and i think i think we'll we'll get into this more when we talk about stalker and sort of some of the context around this that is that goes into uh the making of stalker but 
Um, number one, Tarkovsky ends up really kind of not liking this movie, or at least it being his least favorite movie that he made, um, specifically because he really just dislikes science fiction and genre films as a whole. And as you said, it was sort of his attempt at, at like deconstructing that, but he kind of felt like he didn't really accomplish that to, to, to his liking. Um, but it's also, um, it's, it's the beginning of what ultimately becomes this attempt to make what is like essentially the opposite of a genre film, which is a film that uh, is devoid of any kind of like um, outside referential context. Uh, which I, I have a lot of thoughts about that, and we'll talk about that more. But uh, it's almost like the it's it, you could look at it as either the polar opposite of Stalker in his filmography or like the 1.0 of Stalker. Mirror was released in 1975 and would be the direct predecessor to Stalker. Mirror is structured in the form of a nonlinear narrative with its main concept dating back to 1964 and undergoing multiple scripted versions by Tarkovsky and Alexander Misharin. It unfolds around memories recalled by a dying poet of key moments in his life and in Soviet culture. The film combines contemporary scenes with childhood memories, dreams, and newsreel footage. Its cinematography slips between color, black and white, and sepia. The film's loose flow of visually one-eric images has been compared with the stream-of-consciousness technique in modernist literature. And the final film that Tarkovsky made while living in the Soviet Union is Stalker, released in 1979. Nostalgia, released in 1983, and The Sacrifice, released in 1986, were produced in Italy and Sweden, respectively. He also published a book, eventually, titled Sculpting in Time, which was a deconstruction of his editing process and filmmaking techniques. Spandrew, what was the, uh, what, what's, what's your first interaction with old Dirty Andre here? Big, Big Daddy Dre, as they say in the streets. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I'm not, I'm not really that familiar with his work. Um, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm definitely very aware of him, but I, you know, prior to this episode, I hadn't seen Stalker. And I think that like, you know, unless I'm just forgetting, I think the only movie of his I really watched was Solaris. Um, and, uh, the reason for that, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think I just never really like inter engaged too much with like Russian, uh, Russian films from this time period. So I, I think I had only seen Solaris and I saw Solaris, uh, I think, uh, it was like a, it, I think it was like in my early twenties. Um, I remember specifically back whenever before Netflix was a streaming service and when it was just the specifically like rent by mail service, um, the I don't know about you, but the idea at the novel idea at the time of just being able to like go on a website and like order three movies and have them shipped to you and then immediately send them back in this like never ending loop was this was this opportunity and excuse for like experimenting with ways of watching movies for me. So I would do all kinds of different like marathon runs of watching movies. So I would do like director runs where I'd watch like every movie by one director all in a row. And sometimes I would do like movie and remake runs where I would just rent a bunch of like, movies and their remakes in a row and watch them all in a row and kind of just like do different like blocks of watching like that. Um, and I and I think that what I did specifically was during one of those like re a movie and its remake um, uh, marathons or or experiments or whatever you want to call it. I, in addition to watching uh, a bunch of different other ones, I like uh, um, Cape Fe Cape Fear, Scarface, uh, Psycho. I watched the two Solaris movies, and I, th I think that is literally the only uh, the only Tarkovsky movie I saw prior 
prior to this? Um, yeah, I I am not a huge Russian film buff either, but I will say that I I really like Andrei Tarkovsky, and I've seen The Mirror, um, Stalker, Solaris, and like most of Andrei Rublev but I'm not gonna front I was watching it on a tv in my aunt's house and uh we had to leave so <laughs> <laughs> and I I never wa- went back and watched the rest of it which is a crime I should uh and I should not be admitting that here in the public eye but I'm human so it is what it is um yeah I I think uh I like I like Tarkovsky. I like Tarkovsky's work a lot, but I also like him as a person a lot. There's a lot of really interesting flaws and sad dichotomies about him as a person that uh, I relate to, especially when I was writing this script. I wrote this script maybe, Andrew. What, what do you What do you think? Six months ago? Yeah, you wrote you wrote it during the time when the show was on hiatus, and um, I think you were kind of working through some some grief during this time. So you were kind of like. There's a bunch of you wrote some scripts, uh, but I don't think that you were necessarily ready to actually do them as episodes. There was kind of I mean, at the time, we were, you weren't going to do the show at all. Um, and I think so. I think you were just kind of like I think you were just kind of working through some stuff. And then that produced a handful of scripts that ended up when we brought the show back um, becoming actual episodes. Um, yeah. And, I, and now we're finally getting to this one. Obviously, the biggest piece of that being uh, the death of my friend, Andrew McLuhan Price. Uh, But also, you know, at that point in time, uh, I was at this weird low point with the book that I was working on where I had been drawing it. It's like a I've talked about it on the show previously, but this episode directly comes from that process. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion about that. You know, a lot of this comes directly from the fact that I was going through some shit with the book that I was working on, too, like. Yes, Andrew's death was really hard to deal with, but also I was like lost in this weird tunnel of I was working on this book, which I've talked about on the show previously and we'll probably spend some time discussing in general. That's half novel, half comic. Um, and it just felt like it was never going to called the called the the official Papa Roach graphic novel by Z2 Comics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, guys, I'm taking over. I'm taking over Papa Roach. Can you believe it? Um it's called Cut My Life Into Pieces. That's literally I was that's literally what I was gonna say. I was gonna say it's it's called Cut My Life Into Pieces. This is my last retort. And it's just about it's about Papa Roach, like in Elizabethan times, like having debates with other like dignitaries. Yeah. Yeah. Written by me, drawn by Greg Land, uh out from Z two on greater comic book in greater comic book stores everywhere. Um but yeah, it it, it you know, I was really kind of like lost in this void of like, is this book ever going to be finished? Is anyone ever going to publish this thing? Is this, you know, because I've put out some, I've put out a body of work, a considerable amount of work. I've gotten a lot of it published by really, you know, impressive, legitimate publishers, Simon & Schuster, Dark Horse, so on and so forth. But yeah, for whatever reason, this book, which was like this avant-garde thing that I wanted to do, I just could not convince anybody else that it was a good idea. (laughs) Like everyone was like, "Mm, I don't know, bro. And I was like, no, no, it's going to be great. And they were like, mm, is it though? And so, and I spent five years living in the, mm, is it though, space. And that that's hard for a, after a while. That really grates on you. Um, so when I was writing this script about Stalker, I, I think a lot of it is directly related to that emotion where I was really searching for... <laughs> any sort of um any sort of like oh maybe it'll be okay and then i found this story of a director who was like never gave up and i was like yeah never give up and then he died of radiation poisoning and i was like fuck 
I, I think I think even uh, I think even Andrew is a little bit a part of the is it though crowd because I remember he told me and I don't know how much of this I don't know how much of the specifics you want to be said like out loud I don't know where you are with like telling anybody about it but like so I won't say the specifics but the original the book originally was based off of just like a joke pun name that you made up and Andrew not- notoriously just dislikes puns in general, but specifically is sort of antagonized by the puns that you come up with. And so when you start, when you were like, oh, I've taken that pun, that dumb pun I came up with, and I've actually turned it into like a different real idea. I think that for a long time, he was kind of like, what, what, like, what, what is this? You're just, you're taking that stupid pun and you're making an actual book out of it. And it ended up becoming something completely different, like not yeah, even ended, not even in the same up, realm. But yeah, and it's also not named that pun anymore. Yeah, yeah, the name has changed. But in the beginning, it was like, what? Why? Yeah, 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 yeah. But we we both know that that's like totally my personality. <laughs> if somebody is like, I don't know if this is a good idea, it makes me inherently be like, no, it's a good idea. Fuck you, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, <laughs> like no, sure. no, no, I'm I'm gonna do this. Fuck you, get out of my way. You're slowing me down. Yes, and bitch. Yes, and get away from me. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> look no further than the fact that uh, I'd, I'd say probably a decent amount of listeners of this show would probably prefer it if we didn't show them the uh, narrative adventures of our real lives as boy detectives and just just kept talking about these stories. And yet and yet. <laughs> um, but also uh, on a serious note, uh, it's interesting that you say this. I, I, I didn't I didn't really know this. I didn't or I didn't think about this going into this episode or doing the research and stuff like that. The idea that you were sort of like uh, interacting with that experience while you wrote this. Um, And uh, it's very interesting because I sort of independently of that, I came up with a lot of thoughts that I think will serve as a good companion piece to what you're talking about right now. Um, And I think that it'll be really cool to talk about this stuff in act two to almost like balance out like you're, you're talking about some of your personal experiences with what you were doing at the time with the book. And I have a lot of thoughts about similar things that I took away from the movie. Act two, art is born out of an ill-designed world. The film we're here to discuss primarily is Stalker. And this does not translate to the audio at all, but these shots are just gorgeous. Yeah, this is like, this is a terrible, I mean, we, we play clips in the show a lot that are like video clips where you can only see the, hear the audio and something is lost usually just hearing it, but it's still like you kind of can get some kind of value out of it, but this is just like. There's no value of, of listening to this at all because unless you speak Russian, you can't understand what anyone's saying. And Tarkovsky's entire thing is the visuals of his movies. crazy. Like it doesn't even. It's just. It's just like a joke. It's wow. This is the best thing I've ever seen. If you if you can't see this right now, you're you suck. 
It's so good though. Like that the there's a scene in the movie that takes place in this room with all these weird little like hill structures made of dirt. And it's just doesn't sound like it would be cool, but it's fascinating. Yeah, even you're describing it, it's like that sounds dumb. That sounds bad. You have to see it. <laughs> This movie's great. There's a scene where there's just there's dirt in it. Something from space has crashed on Earth in a fictional country. It created what is often referred to in the film as the zone. Many people have gone in. Few people have come back. It's been walled off and controlled by military troops ever since. We follow three men, a stalker, the writer, and the professor, as they venture into this unknown region in search of the room, a supposed place with mystical abilities, that if you can find your way through the labyrinth of the zone, you'll be able to have your truest wish granted. The film is an adaptation of Roadside Picnic, The Tale of the Troika, by Arkady and Boris Strogatsky. It's a slow-paced, plotting narrative. Grigory Rurberg was the cinematographer for the film, and he and Tarkovsky wanted to shoot the film in abandoned nuclear power plants that were all over the countryside. This obviously presented them with very specific challenges. Stalker's production was plagued with issues. The first one that we're going to discuss is the fact that Tarkovsky initially hired his own wife to play the part of the stalker's wife, and that she was so difficult to work with that the crew started calling her the Empress. Rurberg eventually had to go to Tarkovsky and be like, bro, do you want to make this fucking movie? Because if so, we need to get an actual actor in here, not your fucking wife. And the Empress was soon replaced with Alyssa Freydlich. And then the real twist happened. After three months of shooting in abandoned nuclear power silos, trekking all over the goddamn country, filming in impossible conditions, with most of the movie shot, they sent the footage in to be developed in a lab in Moscow, and when it came back, something had been fucked up. The film had printed green and dark, like unusably dark and green. Here are some shots from the footage. Bandrew, what are we looking at here? We're looking at a bunch of nothing. We got, we got, some, we got some shots uh, from this movie, which, if you've seen the film, are not unfamiliar because they are similar. They're in different locations, but they're similar uh, cinematography and the general look, except for um, you can't see shit. It's too dark. Looks like a looks like a fucking early two thousands Christopher Nolan film. So the main uh, shot we have here is one of the characters, the stalker, uh, walking down a hallway uh, and like looking past the camera uh, with the writer. Um, and the the footage, uh, the movie itself is shot with pretty uh, natural light. It's it's. You know, even though the zone is a an otherworldly kind of unknowable forest, uh, it's not shot in an abstract way. It's just like that's a shot of a fucking tree. But they're in this abandoned house in this these photos and the walls of the house, which are obviously not green, are like super fucking like lime green almost, um, which frankly, I kind of like. I think it looks really cool and weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say, if I was if I shot this movie and it came back and it was like, shit's green man i would be like well guess guess we our world is green because i ain't doing that again but i th I think the big issue though is just that it's the the darkness like you just it's yeah it's like way underexposed to the point where it it would just it's unusable so why did it get fucked up long story short the film stock kodak 5247 that and some mishandling kodak 5247 was a new film stock that the russian labs weren't quite acquainted with how to handle yet so what do you do in this situation do you if give it up? underexposes it underexposes <laughs> so what do you do you give up 
or do you keep going? Well, one thing's for sure. You fire the fuck out of the second cameraman and the production designer and a bunch of other people and Rohrberg. Fuck you, you're Rohrberg. Your name's hard to say. It's, uh, it's, it reminds me of the rural juror from 30 Rock. I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a guy in here that has a way easier to say name. They'd been having conflict about creative directions throughout the process, and it just reached ahead. When talking about their film The Mirror, Roberg said, Andre made a film about himself, and I made a film about myself. Luckily, it was the same film. Which sounds like the language of a frustrated director in waiting. The type of person who doesn't want to be a cinematographer. The type of person who wants to be a director and can't quite manage to get themselves into the chair. This is one of the great beefs in cinematic history. There's actually a documentary about this called Rurberg and Tarkovsky, the reverse side of Stalker out there for anyone who's so inclined. In 1993, five years after his death, Tarkovsky's journals were published. He said Rurberg sucked as a cinematographer and that he was an asshole. So Tarkovsky went boldly into the unknown to refilm the work that he had already just fucking filmed. Apparently, Stalker was meant to be a two-part film, an epic, a film about getting lost that would require you to literally wait in between installments, replicating the feeling that people would have in the film. So, you know, Tarkovsky dove back in with gusto, this time hiring cinematographer Leonid Kaleshnikov. They shot for months in an abandoned hydroelectric plant in Estonia. Eventually, he looked at the footage and was unhappy with it as well. So what did he do? He fired Kaleshnikov. He's the Donald Trump of Russian filmmakers. Das are fired. So what's left to do but shoot the film for a third time? He hired Alexander Kanyatsky and they attacked it full on. This version was massively rewritten and reconfigured to adhere to locations they already had. It's not a shot-for-shot remake like the second one was intended to be. This is a completely separate movie with a similar story. This is one of only two shots from the original first production that's in the finished film. The Basically, there's this this tracking sequence where we see a yellowish, dirty foam on top of water in this lake, and it looks mystical and whimsical and maybe toxic. And we we basically have no uh we ha- we basically have very few shots or evidence of any of the footage from the the first or the second attempt at the movie, uh, namely because. The editor of Stalker um, had the original negatives in their house and their house caught on fire and all of the negatives were destroyed and they were killed. Fucking dark. Uh, so this, this feels like a good place to kind of talk about the movie itself before we kind of get into the fallout of what happened and all of the super sad shit. <laughs> that we all uh, know yes. coming right around the end. Stalker, the movie starring Russian Woody Harrelson, Russian Robert Duvall and Russian Christopher Plummer. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, the Woody, the Russian Woody Harrelson. I would have said, wait, did you say Russian Christopher Eccleston? That's perfect. Actually, I said Christopher Plummer, but Chris. Oh, so I who you're talking about? I said Robert Duvall, but he oh, does. OK, but he does look like Christopher Eccleston as well. You're right. You're yeah, totally right. He's, he's much more of a Russian Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. This is your this is your first time seeing Stalker. What are you? What was your what were your immediate thoughts? What did you what? How, how did it treat you? What do you think? Longest set up for an X-Men movie ever. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I just I, I watched it for the first time. Uh, I mean, to, to go to go uh, to go top down here. Uh, I love I loved it. It was great. Uh, I I enjoyed every every second of it. Um, the I, I the I, like I said, I'm not super familiar with Tarkovsky, but 
you know, kind of in doing research, I've seen that he's referred to as like a cinema cinematic hypnotist, um, which I think, you know, that that's that's discussed in in that's discussed in film a lot with some with certain directors, like a lot of people um, say that like David Lynch creates um, hypnotic films that are meant to like put you into a sort of a trance. Um, and I, I think that I think that that is very much what happened with with Stalker, where, you know, you have you you have, like I said, very high average seconds per shot. I think the the average is like is like 88 seconds per shot in this movie. So you have and there, these movies, some of these shots go up to four minutes long. Um, so you have these long sort of meditative static sometimes shots sometimes there's very subtle push-ins and um like i said unlike unlike the more kind of like technical marvel one shots that you see in a a spielberg movie or something like birdman or whatever where it's kind of like a gimmick um these these are not like technically impressive shots there's really kind of nothing happening in them at all um they are just simply static shots with subtle push-ins or pull-outs um, and really what happens in these shots is that you go from like, you, you're, you're watching the shot, you're kind of giving it your, the, the tentative attention that you, that you give any shot in a film when you're kind of like orienting yourself and trying to figure out what's going on. And then after, you know, after 20, 30, 40 seconds, then you're like, what? Oh, this is just nothing. Like we're just sitting here. And then after like 50 seconds, a minute, then you forget trying to look for details, which is what you typically do when you're watching a scene. What is the important detail? What am I supposed to pay, be paying attention to? And then eventually you're paying attention to everything and you're just kind of like absorbing the, the world that the, that the, that is inhabited in this shot. And you're like, Oh, like the, the rippling of the water is, is in uh, here. And like the way that the wind is blowing these trees or, you know, just the way that the light and the shadow is playing off of this person's face and it becomes hypnotic in that way. And you're just transfixed by the, the subtle, like not in the, not in the same way of a science fiction film, the way that there's world building where it's like in this world, we call robots Andes and we, and we have uh, trackers and the trackers track the Andes, not like that kind of world building, but it's like subtle, uh, the the world building of like the subtle minutia of like the world of like the little tiny details that makes it feel like a real lived in environment. Um, I love that. Um, and it's funny because th- like we said before, you wrote this episode a while back, but it couldn't have been more perfect to do this episode now because it really plays into the discussion we were having during the Akira episode uh, about style versus substance and the fact that you realize that like your favorite movies are just vibes only movies because not only is this just like the quintessential vibes only movie but also the entire thing was built off of the concept of a style only film that lacks any and all outside referential context and uh i i I wanted to pull this up because this this just couldn't have been more perfect to what we talked about so there's a scene early on in the movie where uh, the character who's the writer, they're, they're having a conversation and I don't I won't get into like super details because we're going to talk about the movie a lot more in depth, obviously. Um, but there's a scene where one of the characters, the, the scientist or the the uh, the professor is that what is what, what is he? The yeah, the, the professor asks the writer what he writes, what he writes about. And he says uh, he says that um, he writes about his audience 
And then the the professor says, like, oh, it's the only thing worth writing about. And then he says, uh, you should write about nothing at all. And he's referencing a French novelist named Gustave Flaubert, who basically wanted to write a book about nothing, but not in like the Seinfeld sense. Like, obviously, that phrase means something. Um but I just I wanted to read this real quick because this is this is a letter that he wrote to his lover in 1852. And he says, what seems beautiful to me, what I should like to write is a book about nothing, a book dependent on nothing external, which would be held together by the strength of its style, just as the earth suspended in the void, a book which would have almost no subject or in which the subject will be almost invisible if such a thing is possible. The finest works are those that contain the least matter. The closer expression comes to coinciding and merging with it, the final, the finer the result. I believe that the future of art lies in that direction. There are no noble subjects or ignorable subjects. From the standpoint of pure art, one might almost establish the axiom that there is no such thing as subject, style in itself being an absolute manner of seeing things. Um, and basically, that's what this movie is. It's Tarkovsky's successful attempt at making a movie about nothing, completely stripped of anything but his own personal style. Um, and that's why he hated genre so much, because it was it depended on outside referential context and subtext. Um, you know, in this world, we, li we, we live in outer space and we have spaceships and the spaceships have all these computers and uh, you know, we it it, it 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 requires all of this prior context of these science fictional concepts, which he hated. And the the movie Stalker, it, it it's it almost feels like a science fiction movie in a way. But when you really like break it down, it's not it's not at all. There's nothing science fictional or fantastical about it at all. It creates feelings in you that simulate something even though it's literally kind of nothing happens in the movie at all, which is kind of literally what we were talking about with the Akira episode, which I thought, which I found super fascinating. Yeah, because the the meat of Stalker, it replicates, at least for me, I don't I don't know that this is necessarily what Tarkovsky was initially intending, but it it replicates to me the middle, the feeling of the middle part of any creative project where you're slowly putting one foot in front of the other, hoping that things work trying to find your way but you're not fully convinced that you're actually fucking doing it and you feel like you're going in circles and so the the meat of stalker is these three characters the writer the professor and the stalker lost in these woods called the zone they have to break in there which to me is like it's replicative of the creative process of finding a way to break into an industry or finding a way to break through writer's block or it's this you know pure allegory right of like they this good thing has manifested and society immediately puts up a wall around it. There's literal barbed wire. You have to like, you know, trick guards, pay off dudes, drive a car across some train tracks and like bust through a barricade in order to try and get into this place where there's no guarantee that it's going to be a good experience. You could fucking die in there. But the goal is to go in there in a pursuit of something bigger than yourself. Right. And that to me is just such a powerful metaphor. Right. Like I don't I don't need it to be like in 1991, an asteroid crashed in, into the earth and formed a pocket of pure psychic, you know, uh, realization that if you can get close enough to the way that your molecules vibrate, well, blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't need an actual explanation of what the movie is about. It's that feeling of searching for something and reaching for something more um, and going in specifically going in search of this emotional MacGuffin, um, which is kind of what my book is about. The, the book is half comic. It's called Mary Tyler Moorhawk, and it's half 
comics and half prose. The comics half is a graphic novel that's kind of a throwback story to like a 1960s adventure family, kind of like a Johnny Quest or a Buckaroo Banzai. Um, and it's about the this group of individuals who are adventurers uh, attempting to stop a former villain who's returned from an alternate dimension from taking over the world. Um, you know, it's a very pulpy genre style story. Um, uh, and it, it follows Mary Tyler Moorhawk, who's the main kind of Nancy Drew character, her adoptive robot brother, cutie boy, um, and then her basically her stepmom and bodyguard and a couple other kind of supporting characters as they all go on this adventure to stop a evil supervillain from taking over the world or whatever. And the way the book functions is that's the main driving narrative you're reading, but every alternating chapter you read magazine articles and zine, they're basically zine articles from 100 years in the future for this zine called Physicalist Today. In the, in the, in the, like 100 years in the future, physical items have been outlawed and collecting, reading comics, move, watching movies, all forms of entertainment are basically outlawed and owning physical objects are outlawed. So uh, people who are into old stuff end up becoming this underground society, basically, both almost literally and metaphorically. If they organize these kind of like bullshit swap meets where they trade um, bootleg DVDs and they trade magazines from 100 years ago in comics and everybody that has these creative inspirations is forced to work in these giant uh, corporate environments um, and not pursue those creative endeavors. Uh, and the only real way to be creative is a part when you're a part of this underground. So we follow a, a journalist who's also named Dave Baker, who's writing these articles about a TV show that he saw when he was a little kid before they outlawed everything called Mary Tyler Moorhawk, which was adapted from the comics that I'm making and you're reading. And so the the book kind of toggles back and forth between these two narratives. Uh, this journalist who also has my name attempting to find a version of me 100 years in the future who may or may not have created this TV show based on a comic that he made and the actual comics which filter into the story and kind of thematically rhyme with the um with the prose stuff like poetry rhymes but you can kind of see why that might be it's a little avant-garde right it's a little weird um it's understand it's understandable why i might not immediately have been able to convince somebody that this was a good idea to do um because it's strange and avant-garde and literary and is a big swing and i saw stalker and lost my mind i was like this is exactly what i'm fucking experiencing right now what the fuck is this yeah it's it's really interesting because i feel like i had a very i feel like i had a very similar takeaway that is almost it almost serves as like a as like as like a rorschach test of just like a very similar takeaway that is just like different in a very fundamental way from what you took away from it that just seems to be very telling of us as people um because you know the you know I, I don't I don't want to get too far into like analyzing the film because I just watched it and there are so many other much better more in depth analysis of this movie that I just couldn't even hold the candle to but I think you know broadly the movie well okay so I, we kind of haven't really talked about the movie specifically yet but ba basically uh, the movie is about I mean you you cover the beginning of it there's this, the stalker the the writer the professor. The stalker is this guy that basically leads people into the zone, which is, as you come to find out, is this area in a, a sort of like post-apocalyptic Russia um, where everything is just the world is just sapped of resources. Everything is bleak. 
Um, nobody enjoys life anymore. Um, and so much so that the world is literally in sepia tone. Um, whenever they're out in the real world, everything is in sepia tone. But this place called the zone is this place where a, a, a meteor has crashed or like a spaceship has crashed. Nobody knows. There's just kind of like legends of what it is. But at any rate, it's this place where nobody's allowed to go to. It's guarded, as you said. Um, but in this area, the zone, it's lush and beautiful and green. And there's trees and plants and flowers. And whenever they cross into the zone, the the movie is in color, full, you know, vibrant color. And uh, ironically, the, the sort of bleak resource uh, starved real world is where everybody lives. Um, but nobody lives in the zone, this place that looks way more habitable and, and idyllic and somewhere you'd want to be, um, because it's supposed to be this metaphysical realm where, uh, navigating around it is a risky situation and you'll likely die unless you have a guide there to show you how to do it. And so they go into this place and they're kind of looking to fulfill some kind of desire so the, the writer apparently wants to solve his writer's block as you said and the and the professor wants to be famous for like showing the world the scientific reality of the zone and the stalker leads them into there and he has to kind of like navigate through this labyrinth uh of a, of a place where there's all these specific little rules and it's kind of funny because it the, navigating through the zone kind of reminded me of uh you know how in like several different sitcoms they're, they're they'll have this they'll have these like fictional games and the joke of the game is always how like weirdly convoluted it is and there's no internal logic to the game and yet the characters seem to understand it like uh true american from new girl or the cones of dunshire from parks and rec that's what the zone is there's just these convoluted set of rules that you have to follow in order to survive that don't actually make any sense. And the stalker is basically telling you what you have to do. And he's like, we have to throw, we have to take these little like metal nuts and tie string to them. And we just have to throw them, you know, in our path. And if you don't throw the metal nut before you walk into that direction, you'll die. And like, you have to, you can never go back because if you go back, you'll, you won't be able to find your way. And like, you can't, Go to the exit, but don't go any further than the exit. And there's all and throughout the whole thing, there's just all these like convoluted rules. So they navigate through this world trying to get to the room. And in the room, you can go in there and you can fulfill your desire or whatever. And it's basically like a metaphor for faith, like relig religious faith, where the stalker is like a he's like a, a priest or or like a, a religious person. And he's navigating people through their faith and saying like if you follow these rules and if you do everything perfectly you'll get to this place that is a magical place where all of your dreams will be fulfilled but you have to do all these specific rules and i know that they don't make any sense whatsoever and to an outsider they seem like just made up gobbledygook but i know that this is real and i know that if you follow all these rules we'll get to this land of 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 all, everything that you can desire and so they do all this stuff and going back to what I was saying before, again, going back to the metaphor of religion, nothing actually happens. We only are taking the stalker's word for it that these things are true. He tells all these stories of like what the zone does. If you don't do this, you'll die. If you go in here, you'll die. 
but you never actually see any of this stuff happen. And in fact, there are several points where the characters break the rules and the stalker is like, no, you're Drew, you're going to die now. And then they don't die. And then he's like, oh, you're so lucky. You made it out of that. That's never happened before. So you get this sense that there's a there's a there's there's a version of this where all these things are true. And then there's a version of this where this is all bullshit and he's just making it all up and it's just a regular place and they can just they don't have to follow any of these rules. So it's like it's like a Schrodinger's cat of like, maybe this is a weird metaphysical house of leaves situation or maybe this is a field. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's this and it's this. And then at the end, do you want to do you want to tell the end or do you want to just get to talking about the end? Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I feel like I would be comfortable talking about the end if I thought more people had actually seen the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want to spoil the end for. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But at at, at any rate, there's some stuff that happens in the end, which we won't spoil. But essentially, like the movie is broadly this metaphor for religious faith and the idea of the stalker being uh, this this man of of God um, and one of the last remaining men of God, the last remaining people in the world that has faith. And this overarching metaphor of the movie is that like a world that has lost faith will crumble into ruins. And that could be taken as a as a as a pro religious metaphor that like an increasingly secular world will devolve into chaos. Or it could be taken as a criticism of religion to say these people are just blaming the problems of the world on the la- the loss of religion. The f- they're, 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 they're not, they're, they're, they're not correlated at all, or they're not, they're not causal. They're, they're just correlated. There's this, there's this reducing of faith and religion in the world. And it's coinciding with increased fighting and war and issues and environmental de- degradation and all these things. And people are just incorrectly blaming the the incorrectly blaming the 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 issues of the world on religion rather than the real problems, which are like colonialism and racism and all these horrible things. Um, but I took a very specific thing away from this, a, fr- a very specific personal uh, meaning away from this, um, which was similar to what you were talk- talking about, but like with like a different a different in a different like flavor i guess which is the process of the movie reminded me of a person striving to make things and putting a lot of work and a lot of their 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 passion and their soul into making stuff creating things and sort of like trying to guide people along on this on this journey of this thing that they've made like come with me i want to show you this thing and i've put a lot of work into it and it's going to be great and I just want you to see it. I want you I want to enjoy. I want you to enjoy it because I made this so I can enjoy it. I have to enjoy it vicariously through other people. And then at the end of the at ultimately at the end of this, you know, these people, they're they're skeptical. They're kind of tentatively going along with 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 what you're trying to show them. And at the end of the at the end of it, when you finally shown it to them, it's not that they're disappointed, but it's that they just didn't have the reaction that you wanted them to that you hope that they would and it just reminded me a lot of the fact that we've talked about this before i don't know if we talked about it on the podcast but we've definitely talked about it just in person that like creating stuff is like a very lonely endeavor where you make things because you you make the things that you wish you could experience and by the very nature of not of having made it you can't actually enjoy the thing that you created because you were there you were like in it 
you saw all the moving parts, you saw how the sausage was made. Um, you kind of ruin it for yourself, this thing that you wish existed. And so the only option is to be able to enjoy it vicariously through other people. Like that's the goal is to make something so that you can see people enjoying it in the way that you wish you could enjoy it. And inevitably, that's a that's a fool's errand because people will never even I mean, especially when you're struggling and especially whenever you have ideas that are very specific and very much uh your thing and very and and very specific the specific hyper niche that you want it to be but even whenever you experience success and you have people like things uh in, to a large degree and you find an audience they tend to not quite like it like in the way that you wish that they would like it's almost it's like it's almost like it's never good enough for you and that's that's what the feeling of this movie was to me was like trying to guide someone along on this journey that you that you feel very passionate about and knowing that you can't experience it like the soccer can't go into the room he can't experience the true happiness and desire or whatever all he can do is feel satisfied that he's helped somebody else to experience that and at the end of it that doesn't happen he can't and that felt so much to me like seeing a project through completion and being really excited about putting it out there and it just not quite people the not deafening. Yeah, the deafening yeah. maw of like indifference that 90% of the work that any artist makes receives. Yeah. And like the idea of just like emptying yourself out of all of that energy and inevitably not being able to refill that with the the validation or the enjoyment or the vicarious experience that you hoped you would. I relate to everything you just said so deeply so incredibly deeply and i think that root emotion is why i connected with the movie in the first place but also knowing the story behind the story of knowing that he made it three times knowing that he filmed it in places where there was you know radiation half-life and chemical warfare and all of these horrific atrocities had been enacted on the forest lands that they were filming in so that everybody got sick and you know the the producer of the movie died. Tarkovsky died at 61. The main actor died at 59 or 57. Like, you know, knowing the the kind of like futility in the face of this immense ambition of like, I'm going to make this movie that's super hard and avant-garde and bizarre, not once, not twice, but fucking three times. It's going to be a massive cultural thing that people all around the world for a half century later are still talking about. But it doesn't matter because I fucking died. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, like. Which we've talked about before. We've talked about that concept of like Herman Melville dying before d dying, basically like a a penniless, obscure, um, you know, swash swashbuckling seafaring adventure pulp novelist and going on to become one of the most important uh, novelists uh, in in classical literature of all time, you know, af after death. And that's kind of how I f was feeling about making the book, right? Because I was like in the middle of writing all of this work. You know, I don't know if anybody that's listening to this has ever written a novel before, but it fucking sucks, bro. Like <laughs> making comics also sucks, but it sucks in a completely different way. Like they both just are so time consuming and so demanding. And there was a period when, when I was writing the book where I just didn't have any free time. So I would get up at 545 in the morning 
take the bus to my day job so that I could be there early and so that I could I didn't own a computer so I could write the novel sections on <laughs> work computers for like an hour and 15 minutes before anybody else would get into the office. And I would just like quickly be like banging away like, oh, God, I got to fucking write this before anybody shows up and sees that I'm doing this like for like six months, which in hindsight might sound romantic and like, oh, you really did it. Wow, that's so great that you had all this conviction to get up at fucking 545. No, I don't want to do that. It fucking sucks, bro. It fucking sucks. And it's, it's, it's even more depressing when it's one thing when you're at least in that fun period of making the work where you're like, going to be so cool. People are going to get to see this eventually. It's going to be fun. Blah, 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 blah. But then you finish it and you send it to publishers or editors and they're all just like, nah. You're like, I spent five years on this, though. No, sorry, not for us. Next one. I spent five years. No, not for us. But I've spent five years. No, not for us. And it's just this like gauntlet of being punched in the fucking face. And uh, yeah, man, it's intense. And, and you know, I think this episode is going to come out way different be that we, than it would have if we had recorded it at the time. Because at the time, I was like knee deep in that depression. And now I'm much more centered about it because thankfully, miraculously, I've found a publisher to put the book out and I'm very, very excited about it. And there are prestigious publishers put out like best selling books and like, you know, put out like medium defining work. And I'm really, really amped for when it gets fucking announced. But, you know, I so I feel much better about it. And I can now like look at both the movie and the story and my book and feel a little bit in a good way removed from it where I don't have any anger or frustration in the way that I might have at a previous point in time um, because ambition in the face of an indifferent world is not always and why should why should anybody give a shit about what I want right like I'm nobody I'm not who who gives a fuck you know there there should there's no I don't want this to come off as me being entitled and being like, I'm a fucking genius. People fucking should put out my work. It's not that. It's just uh, you, uh, you, you, I don't know. I don't even know how to phrase it in, in a way that doesn't involve some sort of ego like that. But it's really not an ego thing. It's more of a, I'm just trying to make stuff. And there's sometimes it feels like there's like three avenues to making things and anything that's not in one of those very narrow, restrictive avenues just doesn't get a chance to live. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the real life story is dark, as we just talked about, that he dies young before sort of like seeing any of the recognition of of people enjoying this movie. Um, but the act, but there's there's kind of a, a hopeful message in the actual film in, in the stalker it, it, it to follow this metaphor that we've been laying out about, you know, mapping this onto like the creative process and. The idea of like making something and putting it out there and um, for for people to enjoy, you know, the Tarkovsky said that ultimately the 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 zone is just the real world. Um, it's not a a fantastical magical place. It's just life and the three people, um, you know, the stalker, the the uh, the writer and the and the professor are just regular people navigating the real world. Um, and, uh, also, um, Ingmar Bergman watched the movie and he talked about it a little bit. He ultimately said that going back to the religious metaphor, that the idea that there is nothing in the room, that, um, the, the, the things that the stalker said were not true, that he was just making them up, that there was no 
there's no God, there's no there's no faith, faith, you know, it's all just a sham. That idea is not scary, but rather reassuring the idea that like there are all these things in the world, the things that we've accomplished, the things that we've done, the world around us, all of these all of these marvels of our universe. And um, that there's not just some random ghost that was just like, I made all this shit and you're just like a little cog in it. Like we've done all this. We've made all this. We've created all this. It's all us. And like the room is inside of us, um, which which sounds very kind of cliche. But that's literally what he said uh, was that the room was inside of all of us. And I think to map that onto this metaphor that we're talking about um, and the way that I kind of thought about it was um, I don't know where you're sort of at in this process. But the thing that I sort of had to come to grips with was that I think that I do that. I think that I I, I make things because ultimately I want to make people happy in the way that things made me happy when I was young and didn't have a great childhood and was maybe a little lonely, maybe didn't have many friends, maybe didn't have many like positive experiences going on in my life because of like home issues and, uh, you know, situations that I was dealing with back then. And, you know, as 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 sad as it is, there 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 were, you know, there were times when characters in TV shows were my friends and. There was times whenever watching some show or some movie was like the one moment in my life when I could just sort of like, you know, escape from that feeling of insecurity and kind of feel, you know, whole in that moment. And I think my the ultimate goal of me wanting to make things is to bring that experience to others. And I think that's the, the goal of a lot of people who make things. Um, but the issue is going back to the metaphor. What I said before is that it never quite gets there. You never quite fill the tank back up after you've gone gone down to empty. You, you you go down to empty making the thing and you can never quite refill the tank from the from the the vicarious experience of happiness that you want to feel. And I think that where I've sort of like gotten to in that experience is after doing that multiple times and feeling that like draining feeling of like, oh like it just it's never they they it's just they it's never received in the way that I wish it would be received. Um I've learned that you kind of have to you can't really think of it that way and you have to think of it as something that you've done for yourself and the process of creating that and putting it out into the world is in and of itself the experience that you are the goal of 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 the project the goal of the thing that you're making and any kind of reaction to it is just like icing on the cake or whatever it's just like oh and if people really enjoy this that's great um and there's also kind of like a little thing at the end of the movie which once again won't spoil but um, that kind of ties up that metaphor in a really nice way where there's there's a character who after everything and after the depths of the stalker, the main character kind of feeling that faith has been zapped out of the world, feeling this bleakness of knowing that nobody has faith. There's one person that proves that the magic is real or whatever, that proves that there is something magical about the zone. And it goes back to what I said about this being the longest setup for an X-Men movie ever. And I think that that's like the little, the nice little bow is like, if there's one person in this world that does, that it does impact in that way, then it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely talked about that before. And I, we both know that I agree with that. The whole deal, ye old Robert Zadar principle, I think is what we refer, or no, never mind. We weren't referring to it that way. Yeah. Andrew he, and I. Yeah. Were. It was, that was, that was, I remember that. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think I am, that that's once again, I'm a, I went I was an avid listener of the show before joining it. So I have an encyclopedic knowledge of all previous conversations had between you and Andrew. I mean, I, I think that there's something to be said for also like just enjoying the process of something like, yes, I make things because of the end result. Yes, I want to will a certain thing into existence. But there's also like these things take years, you know, and they take years because they're hard. They take years because they're time consuming. They take years because it's not something that everyone can do. And it they if take, you're not they take it, years because you're like, all right, time to do this. Uh, man, this house. <laughs> uh, yes, it, it yeah, it, it that definitely does happen. Um, but you, you also have to enjoy the process, right? If it's not a fun and it can be hard, I'm not saying it's easy, but if it, but if it's not a fun type of difficulty, then that's just like self-flagellization, right? Um, and I think at certain points in the journey of making Mary Tyler Moorhawk, it was really fun because I was reinventing the way I was drawing. I was developing a new lettering process. I was learning to draw in an anatomical style that I had not drawn previously. Um, it was really, really fun in certain parts. I'd never written a novel before. So the, you know, prose sections were really fun to kind of, you know, look at my favorite novelists and deconstruct their style and try and figure out what my version of that was going to be. And then there were parts that were not fun. And most of the parts that were not fun were not fun due to external circumstances, which is one of the reasons why I leaned onto the Tarkovsky story so much, because, you know, whether it be creative frictions with cinematographers, whether it be environmental or technical issues or just not being satisfied with your own work and needing to scrap it and start again. Like I related to that and I related to how obviously not fun <laughs> that it was. Um, and so I think, you know, my closing thoughts on the film are if you haven't seen it, but you're interested in what we've been saying, you should go check it out. Um, if uh, if you're into weird passion projects that take people 30 years to make, to check it out. You know, uh, this is one of those, I feel like the Holy Trinity or maybe Holy Quadrilogy is like Man Who Killed Don Quixote, the Persistence of Vision documentary about the uh, the thief and the cobbler or the prince and the thief, or whatever the fuck that movie ended up being called. Um, and uh, Mad God by Phil Tippett. You're into movies where technically absolutely nothing happens. And yet it feels like something happens. Yeah, I mean, I, things in this movie definitely happen. Uh, but it's not going to be like a Chuck Lorre Big Bang episode of things happening. Um, yeah. yeah, which is usually what I prefer. But right. Yeah. It was, well, it was a pleasant that's, kinda, surprise. that's how we met, actually. Right. And we meet at a Chuck Lorre convention. Uh, signing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It wasn't even like about his shows. It was just like it was just him. Yeah. Yeah. It was like uh, the whole convention was like everybody was dressed like Chuck Lorre. Every it was really weird. Was it just was selling weird. like Chuck Lorre fan art. It's really weird too because he makes everybody call him Chuckles, and you're you're like, oh Chuck, I really love Big Bang Theory, and he's like, excuse me, it's Chuckles, you know, and he doesn't like, let and he doesn't let you talk about the shows either. Like you say that, and he's like, first of all, Chuckles. Second of all, he points to a sign on the wall that says you are not allowed to reference any of the following shows, and then it just lists you know Big Bang Theory, La uh, Two and a Half Men, uh, whatever other shows he makes. Yeah, it was weird, Duke too. Girls, is that one of his? It, it was weird, too, because Johnny Galecki, the star of Big Bang Theory, was there dressed as Chuck Lorre. Really strange. He was signing in another booth as Chuck Lorre. Yeah, which we that's that's where we met, even though there is a canonical moment that we met in the show. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Well, yeah, my my uh my closing thought is just is just to say that after you know, after all of that little all of the complexity of that metaphor uh that we sort of unpacked, I think the the little the nice little like final ending piece of it is essentially this idea from the movie, which is um once again try not to spoil it, but that uh despite the pain, despite the uh, the 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 frustration and the sorrow and the sadness and the fear. Um, at the end of the day, um, I I don't you know I don't regret having made these choices because if things were different, if there wasn't the pain, the fear, the regret, or the the pain, the fear, the frustration, the sorrow, um, it would be worse because there would be no happiness and there would also be no hope. Um, and I think that that I I would say the same thing about this, where it's just like regardless of all the frustration and the sending it to somebody and they say, no, this is not for us. Sending it to the next person, this is not for us. Um, at the end of the day, it's it's better than if you weren't doing it because there, you, you wouldn't, there, would, there, would, there wouldn't be the hope that you would eventually get the person who says, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about this, which ended up happening. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And um, I mean, for better or for worse, MTMH is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and it's also the thing I'm the most proud of and also the thing that, I'm slightly terrified for when it comes out because <laughs> um, I just got a release date from the publisher and I'm kind of like, oh, God, when this comes out, I'm either going to be able to move on with my life or there will be no point in living anymore. So fingers or, crossed it's the good one of those. Or the publisher's like, oh, no, Dave, not only do we accidentally burn all of the copies of the book in a fire and delete the files from our computer, but also somehow we accidentally like got into your computer and deleted all of the original files from your computer. And then also like part of the fire from our, our office, like did this weird thing where it like snaked out and then like went to your house and then burned the original drawings that you made. So at any rate, you got to start over. My final thought for the episode is there's a, there's an interview with Wally Wood. The uh, EC artist, arguably the greatest technical draftsman in the history of comics. And somebody asked him, hey, Wally, if you ever, you know, if all your pages ever got burned up in a fire and you had to redraw all the comics that you had made, what would you do? And Wally Wood said, I'd rather cut my hands off at the wrist. I'm Dave Baker. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the Internet, you can do so at HeyDaveBaker.com where you can find my book, Halloween Boy currently in pre-orders uh, for a new printing. Uh, we did an episode about it, the Phantom episode, two or three episodes back. So if you're curious about my new project, go there and check out Halloween Voice. Spandrew Vice, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me navigating through a labyrinthian metaphysical realm in which making the a wrong turn can lead to death and not following a convoluted set of rules could lead you into an existential nightmare that would drive you mad. Uh, but ultimately, it's just kind of like a like a field and then you like walk through it and then there's like a building and you go in the building and then the building is just empty. Uh, and you can also find me not on social media because I don't use social media, but if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey because it's something that he would have wanted, go to heydavebaker.com and uh, pre-order his new book, Halloween Boy issue one. Um, or if you want to, you can also go to dapricerights.com and pick up Andrew's book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, 
Um, you can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast. Join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show, make memes. You can also join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, and talk about other things. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can go to our website, deepcutspod.com, click on the shop where you can get some t-shirts, hats, etc. with cool Deep Cuts graphics on them. You can also pick up our Mystery Treehouse Junior Sleuth shoulder patch. And uh, there's a couple of simple code tape comics left, um, as I said before. They're sold out probably forever, unless there's some kind of spike in demand on them. Otherwise, we're not going to have any more printed. Um, I have finally shipped off all of the orders that came in in the last month or so. So those are all out. You should be getting those soon, if not already. Um, and there are about three or four left. $12.99, nine song rock opera concept album about the rise and fall of Napster written and performed by Andrew and Dave with a five page full color comic written by Papa Pricey and drawn by Brandon Nebbit with cover colors by Shannon Willett. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.